0: Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Good morning. How are you this fine day? Fine, I hope. Good. Hey, um, there was a line in that song that we just sang a second ago that I just wanted to, uh, to point out to you. Um, it says, my heart has been in your sights long before my first breath. And I think it's important to be captured by that reality, that your heart has been in God's sight before he formed you in his mother's womb. His, he, he has a plan for you, and it is, it is heart-focused, uh, he is drawing near and wanting to draw you near to, to his heart. And I, I want us to think about that in uh, our time together today. Now, here's what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a bit of a deep dive. So it's going to feel maybe like um, we're going to kind of jump off a cliff into some deep water, go way down, and then pop up real quick, okay? I'm just going to—that's going to be the feeling, uh, maybe, um, and But I, I, I will tie it together, okay? So if you'll just give me a moment or two to unpack this. And I want to share some things with you that we're going to be kind of looking at Um, over the next couple of weeks. And I want to give you a visual that will help, I think, do that. I'm a visual learner. I know others of you are visual learners, and having a diagram helps me to kind of piece some things together. But we're going to be in the Gospel of John today. So if you want to go to John chapter 2, that's where we are heading. It's just going to take us a second um, to get there. I do want to start with a couple other passages of Scripture first. The first being uh, back in the beginning... In Genesis chapter 2, when God uh, was creating, and he gets to the end of uh, most of his creation, and then it says in Genesis 2-7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now some translations use the, the word being, we get the idea of human being out of that, um, the word there is nephish, but it's translated often as soul. Uh, Psalm 103, the psalmist writes about this. Uh, look at this with me. It's, the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul. So starting with your soul, and then it goes on to say, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So there's the soul, and then there's all that's contained in that. Um, in that soul, the, the, the other component parts of us. Psalms 139, the psalmist describes those component parts a little bit. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully a- and wonderfully made, the scripture says, the psalmist says. And then he goes on to says, wonderful are your works. What? My soul, my soul knows it well. My soul, all of me understands, God, that you formed these these unique parts together, and that 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 verse, those verses, speak of a, a person. What it means to be a person. It speaks to our, our personhood. And in his book, uh, *Renovation of the Heart*, Doctor Dallas Willard uh, writes uh, the entire book really uh, about this idea that that we are a soul and that we have these component parts, if you would. And I want to read you just a very brief statement that he made uh, in, in the book. The, the book is filled with lots of brilliant statements. This is a brilliant statement. But it's also um, one that is very down-to-earth, very practical, very very simple in some ways. But it, for me, when I read Dr. Willard, it often feels like I'm, I'm diving off uh, into, into a depth. And this is what he says. He says, God has created all things in such a way that they are inherently intelligible. It, that everything that God has created uh, has been created in such a way that it's understandable. Now, and, and that it, we, we kind of understand how it works. Now, if you are someone who maybe thinks of the universe and, and the world as meaningless, has no value, has no purpose, that everything, we're all just an accident, then you may be somebody who's thinking, I don't believe that. I don't buy into that. If you're, you're somebody who thinks, you know, the, the, the universe is just this random kind of machine, then you would reject that. But if you uh, have a, a biblical worldview, a Christ-centered worldview, you'll understand that it all has a purpose. Let me finish reading that paragraph to you. He goes on to say, all these things that, that are inherently intelligible, understandable, they have parts. These parts have properties, which in turn make possible relationship between the parts to form larger holes and in turn have properties that make possible relationship with larger holes that form even larger holes and so on. The basic structure of created reality applies to everything from an atom to a grain of salt to the solar system or the galaxy from a thought or a feeling to a whole person, to to a soul, if you would, and onto a a social unit. Now, we're swimming back up real fast now, okay? That was the the, the jump off into the deep. We're coming back up real fast. And I'm gonna hopefully give an illustration um, from my week this week that kind of pictures that out a little bit. Um, This past week, uh, on Friday, in fact, a tow truck showed up at my house and took away a 32-year-old pickup truck that had been sitting in our yard. It was an old Toyota pickup truck that I had in the back of my head that I would maybe one day restore, rebuild, and give to my grandson. Thought maybe it's something we could work on together. Well, at some point in that uh, thinking process, my wife and daughter, I think, had a conversation, and my daughter said... My son will never ride in that truck. (laughs) Never. The reason the truck got disabled was the brake system. Um, I was told by a mechanic friend of mine, don't drive this truck anymore till you replace all the the, the brake lines in it. And uh, so it kind of sat up and I thought, you know, we'll do this one day. Well, anyway, there came a point in time recently after realizing that that truck was not going to be a project for me and my grandson that... um, uh, my wife began to make it known, Kathy began letting me know that she was ready for the truck to take a trip um, without her in it. And um, so anyway, the truck took a trip. And getting, just getting it ready to be able to take its trip, I had, to, I had to deal with some of its parts. And one of the parts that I had to keep dealing with were the tires on it because they were not absolutely functional but I, I worked on these tires so I, I, I thought about this tire. This tire it's, just, it's rubber and it it's a part on my vehicle that had needed some loving care and so I gave it some attention but this this rubber tire just is a part um, it has properties it has value it has an ability to do things you can put it on a rim and fill it with air hopefully that was part of the problem I was dealing with but you fill it with air and then it can roll. And when they're in proper working condition, they can actually support additional weight greater than their own. And they could be connected to another part, an axle. And that axle is a separate part. It has its own properties. It functions on its own, has its own purpose. But then you connect it with this tire and and on a rim. And then you connect that all to maybe a transmission and the engine and other component parts of And you end up with this vehicle with lots of parts that each have their own properties, but now they're functioning together. They're integrated. And then that vehicle can then move, carry itself if it's in working condition. Um, And if it's a truck, it can carry even more on it. Um, And it can interact with uh, other vehicles and uh, form something like an Amazon fleet. And what did we do before Amazon? I, I just don't know. And so it's, it's part of a greater whole. It can become part of, of a greater whole in, in that regard. And that's what Dr. Willard was talking about, but he's talking about it and writing about it in the context of a human soul, of you and, and uh, uh, of me. And he points out that from God's word, we can understand these component parts, and he lays out. So many parts in the scripture and how each part uh, that we read about uh, in the scripture has its, has its own purposes. And then it links together to be part of a whole and these parts are, are integrated. Was God's purpose, those inward parts that he knit together, that he integrated. But then sin came along and sin brought disintegration. Disintegration integration no longer being fully integrated our component parts were no longer able to function as God had intended them to function and so Jesus comes to save us from that sin that separated us from God that made us an enemy with God he came to restore that relationship and part of that restoration of that relationship is redemption of the soul and its component parts the reintegration the, the God coming against the disintegration that, that sin had brought about so that we could learn to live life with God, which had been his whole purpose from the beginning, why he sent his son to redeem us. Now, I want to give you this illustration. I'm not going to spend much time in it today. We're going to kind of unpack it as we go along in this series, but I just want to give you this visual, and I want it, it's going to start with your heart. The, 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 the center heart. Can you bring that up, Hannah? It, it just starts at the heart. Now, um, Hannah, go ahead and bring that next slide up. The, the heart in Scripture, there are other terms that also are used interchangeably. And this is your spirit or your will. And this is kind of the central part of who you are. This is the place at which you make decisions. Your, your will is here, your, your, you make volitional decisions here, you choose to go left or right. You, th- so this is where this, this takes place, is at, at the level of the human heart and your spirit are uh, kind of interchangeably used in scripture. Then there's the next kind of level, if you would, and that is is your mind. And your mind has two kind of primary kind of functions in this system, if you would, that Dr. Willard gives us, and that is thinking and feeling. So you think with your mind, you emote with your mind, you, 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 and you pass that information along to your, your will, to your spirit, to make decisions from. And then outside of your mind is your body. And your body is that which has senses in it, and it allows you to gather information, gather data, if you would, to bring that into your mind, that your mind can inform your spirit, will, heart, so that you can make decisions. And outside of that body, that body allows you to interact with others, with bodies, and to have part of this relational connection, which kind of makes you up. It it also informs what's going on around you. You get that information from other people. You interact with other people. You have this, uh, that level of your soul that can connect um, with other people. And then that's that, that outer ring is your soul, where all of this is encompassed. Now, last week, we looked at a passage of scripture in Luke chapter 10, where a lawyer came to try to trap Jesus and kind of basically said, Jesus, what's, what's the most important thing in life? What's life really all about? And Jesus asked him, well, what do you think it is? And this is the man's statement. He says in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you remember back to that diagram, your soul is there, your body's there, your mind is there, your spirit's heart is there. It's all, it's all right there in that verse. And Jesus, when, when this man says that, Jesus says, you're right. That's exactly what life is all about. It, it, it's loving God that way and loving others. Now, we began in, in Genesis 2-7. And we, we saw that God created man in his image. He breathed life into us. The breath of God came into us, and we became this living soul. And that's God's plan. Now, I want us to think today, I want us to focus for just a little bit today on that most inner part. Proverbs uh, chapter 4 verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows the wellspring of life. This is the center of who you are. This is that, that level where the Spirit of God interacts with, with your spirit. When you come to Christ and God's Spirit it, it comes to live in you. And the, the Holy Spirit now interacts with, with your spirit. And it's the place that Jesus begins his inner work of reintegration, of re, redemption, if you would. And I, I believe this with my whole heart, that there is no greater miracle that takes place on this planet than the changing of a human heart than the transformation of a human heart that can lead to the reintegration of that which sin has disintegrated. And this is the work that Jesus is doing and wanting to do in all of us. He's wanting to do this miraculous work of heart. And so he starts there. And so Jesus, Jesus sets out to perform this miraculous work of heart. And to look at that today, I want us to look at the very first miracle that's recorded that Jesus did uh, while he was in the flesh uh, on on earth uh, in that way. So if you've got your Bibles, if you'll go to John chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And it says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, I, I need to go ahead and warn you about something, especially if you're one of those who printed out the, the worksheet, the guideline, uh, the listening guide today. Um, I'm dividing this message a, a little differently. So, this is going to be a two parter now, okay? So, you're not, we're not going to get all the way through all your points today. Come back next week, you'll get the round two, if you would. But they're at this wedding. And this was a beautiful event, this, this beautiful wedding. Um, it's a story about a wedding. it's up in what's called Cana of Galilee. Um, now many of you will remember Jesus was raised in Nazareth. that was a town he grew up in um, and it's part of the Galilee region if you would. It's kind of southern central Galilee and uh, this little Cana of Galilee is to the northeast of Nazareth, about four and a half miles it's not really that, that far. And so, Jesus was here in this, at this wedding. His mom was here at, at this wedding. His disciples were, were with Him at, at this wedding, and Jesus is going to do His, his very first p- uh, miracle there. Now, one of the interesting things to think about a wedding in that day, um, other than the groom and the bride, this was not like maybe the, maybe the parents uh, of the bride and groom, this was not that extraordinary event. In fact, when weddings happened in that day, you know the saying, it takes a village to raise a kid? Well, it took a village to do a wedding. I mean, everybody in the village, in the town was invited. Even some of the surrounding villages would come. And so it would be this, this great big kind of community building event. It was, a, um, it was a huge deal for that man and woman, obviously, but it was an ordinary event just kind of ordinary community event. Um, It was a regular situation for the people that were attending. And what this helps me understand about where Jesus performs his very first miracle, it was done in ordinary daily life. It was done right smack dab where life occurs. And that helps me come to understand when Jesus wants to do a miraculous work of heart in us, He's going to do it in our ordinary daily lives. It's not going to be something way way out of context. It's, it's going to mostly take place in the regular rhythm of life. Now, that kind of goes against something in us. You know, we, we want extraordinary spiritual experiences. We want something big and bold and, oh my goodness, God, you're, you're here. We, we want... We want that kind of of experience. We we want a Paul on the road to Damascus experience, you know? We want those kinds of experiences where what happens is Jesus shows up. He smacks you so hard. You fall flat on your back off your horse. He blinds you, and you can't eat for three days. Now, how many of you are saying, yes, sign me up for that? You know, we, we want those kind of experiences until we really think about it in that context. Or we think about, oh man, Jonah. Jonah just had this incredible experience with God until we stop and think. Get swallowed by a fish, get barfed up on the beach where my mortal enemies live, and now my mission is to go try to redeem them. We don't want spiritual experiences with that kind of baggage. We we think we do, but we really don't. We don't, we don't, we don't want all that. You know, we, we, we want maybe the, 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 the pow, but we don't want the, the package uh, uh, of something like that. But here's, here's what happens when we really begin to understand where God does this miraculous work. Uh, he does it in these ordinary moments. He does it right at street level where transformation occurs. You, you read this, this book cover to cover, And you will see that that's where the work of God really happens, is in the daily, routine points of life. You know, the Scripture tells us that the wisest man who lived, other than Jesus, uh, on the earth was was a guy named Solomon. And Solomon gives us some great writings like Proverbs and um, the book of Ecclesiastes and so, so these, these great, you know, wisdom literature, the song of Solomon about a passionate relationship between a husband and wife. And they're, they're, they're beautiful, they're powerful. But if you study the life of Solomon, there are really only about three or four encounters, if you would. Spiritual encounters with God that we think of are, you know, these big things. Most of Solomon's life was lived in, in the ordinary work of being a king just having to accomplish that work. And so when we, when we begin to understand, this is where God does his greatest work is in our hearts is at, at the street level view. That means it's in the good times or bad. It's in seasons of joy or, or maybe seasons of sadness that Jesus does his ordinary or his most powerful miraculous work right in the ordinary. And what that can do for us is that can help us begin to understand that God's going to do that in my relationship with my lousy boss. Or God's going to do that when I'm doing the laundry or the dishes or, you know, when I'm with my in-laws or maybe for you outlaws, I don't know. Just, that it, 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 would depend. But this is where the miraculous work of heart, the miraculous work of God takes place as in everyday moments. But when we get captured by that reality, When we begin to realize, okay, this is where God primarily does his miraculous work, then all of a sudden, those mundane moments take on a whole new meaning. I can meet God there. God could do something incredible in those mundane moments. So if I've got a problem that I'm going through, and it just kind of seems like, you know, what's the purpose? There is a purpose. God has a purpose in that problem, and I can be captured by that reality, and I can step into that reality, and I can pray, God, do a work in my heart through this problem, and I can, I can turn it over to God. See, that's part of what Paul was saying when he wrote to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 12, and, and he said, he said, I urge you, brothers, to let your bodies be a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. He goes on uh, in verse two to say, that's, that's your spiritual reason for worship. Your, your service, if you would, to God is to do that so that you can go on to prove what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. We see it that way. We see the, the work and the will of God kind of flowing out, uh, it, out of that. And see, God is at work in these everyday moments. And Jesus just takes that. Right where he was, and he's going to do something miraculous. Now look at what happened next. Look at, look at verse 3 with me, if you would, in John. It says, when the wine ran out, the mo- and remember, they're at a wedding, the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, to Jesus now, they have no wine. Let's stop there for just a second. The wine at this wedding runs out. And... Jesus' mom comes to Jesus, turns to Jesus, and says, Son, they're, they're, they're out of wine. Now, contextually, let's just be captured by the reality of, for just a moment, because we could take this for, for granted. They did not have clean drinking water back then. They didn't have bottled water. They didn't have, you know, taps with Diet Coke in them. They didn't have that. They had water that probably wasn't always sanitary. And then they had fermented drink, like wine. And so it was important, it was essential, it was necessary for for there to be wine at at wedding day because it was a big feast and there would be eating. And see, the fermentation process in the wine in that day would kill the bacteria that so often made, made people sick. So to not have that available meant that you would serve water to your guests from which they could end up getting sick, and that was a big problem. That was a a, a huge problem. It was like worst-case scenario social faux pas. It was was a horrible thing. Now, why why would it be so horrible? Well, in our day, we we are a culture that people move around a lot. Uh, Most people do not you know, aren't born and live and die in the same place that, you know, their whole lives. People move around a lot more. And so that's not true in Jesus' day. And so in this day, if a couple had had this wedding and they ran out of wine and there was no wine for their guests and they had to give them water and everybody went home with a stomach virus, henceforth and forevermore, they would be known in that town, they would have the stigma attached to them as the couple who did not care about their guests enough to plan ahead and provide enough wine. So everywhere they went, the rest of their lives, living in that town where they always lived, people would, just a family. Yeah, they're the ones that didn't care about their guests at the wedding. Yeah, we all got sick. I mean, that, it was a huge social faux pas. It was just a, a really, really big deal. There was this great need, And Mary understood that. Mary, Mary got that, that there's nothing worse than a stigma that might follow you around all the days of your life. Mary understood what that st- a stigma was like because one followed her around. But th- here's what's unfolding Jesus steps into this moment, this moment of tangible need to perform his first miracle. So we've got this event that's an ordinary event for most people that day, but now we have this tangible need where Jesus is going to perform his first miracle. Friends, this helps me come to understand that one of the things that Jesus wants to do to do a work of of heart in me is in our moments of need, right where we need him to work, right when and where we need it most. Jesus wants to do miraculous work in your life. And it could be a physical need, it could be a relational need, but all of us, all the time, need Jesus to be doing a miraculous work in our heart. We need for the Lord to touch our hearts, to transform us, to, to change us. See, most people don't pray for uh, a miracle when everything's going great or when they perceive that everything's going great. But the moment things start going south, we go to God and say, "Lord, would you would you do something?" But here's what we need to realize. Our hearts left unattended are always going off the rails. Always falling off the chart. Always. And so we need to pray regularly. We need to be asking Jesus regularly for a miraculous work to be constantly taking place in, in our hearts. God, God, help my heart, transform me every day to be more like, like Jesus. And so there was this big problem that day, and Jesus stepped into it. Mary brings it to Jesus And that's what we need to do. We need to bring our needs to Jesus. There's not a need that you have that shouldn't be brought to Jesus, whether it's physical, whether it's relational, emotional, spiritual. We need to bring them to Jesus. Now, please hear me say this. He is not always going to say yes to everything you ask, the way you ask it, you know, in the time you want it. He's not always going to do that. In fact, if you walk with Jesus long enough and you pray, enough, there will come a day when you realize that thing that I prayed for two years ago, if Jesus had said yes to me the way that I wanted Jesus to say yes to me, I'd be in a pile of mess right now. Anybody, anybody else ever done that when you look back and say, thank God, Jesus, you did not answer yes there because he's good and he's not going to do that. Because he wants to meet you at your deepest need, even if you don't know what your deepest need is. Even if you're incorrect in thinking it's your deepest need at the moment. He's not going to answer yes to that. When you come to Jesus, you can know that he has that kind of heart for you. He wants to step right in and meet meet your need. God has always longed to do that. And God's people need to to, to step into that. You you remember the uh, Old Testament story of Elisha. I think this is somewhere, it's in 2 Kings 5, 6, 7, 8, somewhere in there. Y'all, somebody text me later, you know, when you find it. But it's the account when Elisha um, has made an enemy of, a, of another king. And this king has put a bounty out on Elisha's head, and he sent his army to find Elisha. They, they, they get the bead on where Elisha's at, and so they surround uh, his home where he's at. And um, his servant, and this is kind of Joe's imagination here, sanctified imagination, the servant is freaking out, and so he goes and wakes Elisha up. Elisha, Elisha, the armies surrounding us. They're coming for you, man. And I just imagine Elisha, you know, kind of rolling over, look at him, and rolling back over and just out loud praying. God, open his eyes so he can see the reality that there are more for us than against us. And goes back to sleep. I mean, that's how I... Kind of tell the story. There was this immediate need that his servant had. And Elisha prays that this immediate need would be met and God God meets it. This tangible need that this, this, this young man had. He needed to see the hand of God at work so you and I can pray for that. No matter what it is, we need to see the hand of God working in. And truthfully, there are places in our heart that we need to be exploring to ask God to do a work of heart here. Things like, Jesus, make me more compassionate. Jesus, I need, I need to be less greedy. Jesus, I, I need to trust you more. I need to be more faithful. I'm not trusting you, God. Jesus, I need to to be more loving. I, I don't love my neighbor as I love myself. I love myself more. And on and on that could go, just praying to be more like Jesus. And remember now, God wants to do a miraculous work of heart where you need it most. In a tangible need that you have, he wants to do that, that work. And that's one of the reasons the nation of Israel has such a great testimony, because over and over and over again, God did a work in them in the physical realm, but also spiritually. He would do a work in in, in their hearts. God, God would do that. God would continually bring them back to himself so that he could move them along where he would have them be. Now, one of the greatest things that I'm learning, I'm still learning this. I don't have it down perfectly is in those moments of need that I have, that when I bring that need to, to the Lord Jesus, and I say, Jesus, this is a real need that I have, that I need to l- drop the need right there, and I need to quit looking at it, and now I need to start keeping my eyes on the Lord behind the need. I need to, I need to take my eyes off the need because I'm bringing it to Jesus, and I need to start looking at him. And what he's going to do next. I need to be open and attentive to that so that when he gives direction, I, I know to follow. Lord, I'm going to look past the need now that I've brought it to you. And I'm going to look to see what it is you do. Where you move. Because I want to I go there. I want to be there with you. And so looking at the, the frail places in our hearts, Jesus wants, wants us to bring them to him. To him. And then he wants us to realize that he is bigger than that need. He has power over that need, and he wants to do something extraordinary in you, in that very real need. And so we see that Jesus does his miraculous work in the ordinary place of life, in the moment when we have a need. And then it's fascinating. I want you to look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4, and Jesus said, I'm going to go back and read verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Does anybody other than me remember the first time you read or heard that verse and were shocked that Jesus would look at his mama and say, woman? Woman? Now, some of you know my remember my mama. My mama was um, about four foot eleven, and at her heaviest, soaking wet, weighed about ninety pounds. Um, but if if my mom would have come to me with a problem, she called me Joey. If my mama come to me with a problem and said, Joey, I need you to do something about this, and I looked at her and said, Woman. I'd have been picking myself up off the ground. It's just the truth. Now, we, we read that, and sometimes we might get, we miss the important part that follows that statement of woman because we get distracted by it. But I want you to know this. The word that was translated there, woman, is the word gune. And it is a very, very endearing term. It, it was not Jesus being disrespectful. It was a great word of respect. It was an incredible word of respect. Um, And and his mama would have known that. But we get distracted from that, and we miss what what becomes so so very, very important in in this moment. And that is what Jesus begins to say next. He asks her a question. What does this have to do with me? And then he makes this statement. For my time has not yet come. And this brings me to the last point that I want to make today out of, this, out of this narrative. When Jesus wants to transform, when Jesus wants to do any miraculous work, Jesus will always take those to whom that miraculous work needs to be done in to the cross. See, this is what Jesus, this is where Jesus' mind has gone now. Jesus' mind has gone to the cross His time has not yet come. And here's what he's doing. He's pointing his mother and his disciples who were with him, he's pointing them to the cross. In this everyday moment, this kind of ho-hum moment, in this moment of great need, Jesus wants to do a miraculous work. And so he points them to the cross. Jesus, when he performs a miraculous work of heart, always, always, always he always does it in the context of the cross. And so Jesus says, Woman, my time has not yet come. And now some of you are saying, Now, Joe, how do you know that's pointing to the cross? Here's how I know. If you go to John chapter 19, verse 26, the only other place in all of the scriptures where Jesus, speaking to his mom, uses the word gune, is when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he's using what little breath he has left to speak to his mama and to speak to the Apostle John. We read this when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, the Apostle John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, gune, behold your son. See, in, in that moment, what Jesus is doing is he's taking care of his mama. He was the oldest son, that was his responsibility. And so he is, even while hanging on the cross, he's taking care of his Gune, his his mother. And he speaks that, that same word, that same phrase, he called her Gune, And I don't know this, but I wonder, if the only other time, it's the only time it's recorded in scripture, the only other time, if it is the only other time that Jesus used that word with his mom was back at the wedding. I wonder if her mind went back there. If her mind went back to that moment in time where she came to Jesus with this problem that this young couple was having, that this family was having. If she went back there. Because when Jesus was there in John 2, he knew he was thinking about John 19. And he started pointing his mama and he started pointing his disciples to the cross. Friends, when, when Jesus wants to do a miraculous work in your life, he is always going to point you to the cross. He's always going to bring you and me back to the cross because Jesus wants us to see him there because that's where transformation can begin for us when we come to understand how much he sacrificed, how much he loved us, that he would die. He would take all that he had And he would pour it out for you and me on the cross. You know, in in our day, people the the crosses are a different kind of thing. In our day, people wear them as jewelry, uh, which isn't a bad thing. But in Jesus' day, in that context, the cross was a derision of shame. I mean, it was, it was, it was a horrible, it was the, the most horrible kind of brutal inhumane death in history at the time. And sometimes we lose sight of that. You know, kind of the, the, the cultural imagery of us wearing a cross around our neck would, would be, you know, cultures down the road start wearing um, an electric chair around their neck. It was that kind of shame attached to it, that kind of pain and death and agony that was uh, attached to it. But Jesus, when he wants to do a miraculous work, he's going to bring us back to that moment. He's going to point us to the cross, point us to his great love. But Jesus doesn't just want to leave us there. Sometimes I'm afraid that's what happens too often in our Christian experience is that we think Jesus is just bringing us to the cross to point out his great love, to show his great sacrifice so we'll be moved. Well, he does want us moved, but he wants us to to keep moving. He doesn't want us to just have this momentary spiritual event. Jesus wants us to follow him from that point forward. Jesus wants us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and and to follow him. He's always going to point you back to the cross because that's where abundant life can be found. You know, our culture, that's, that's the most ridiculous thing in our culture is that we would give up what we want that we would be willing to turn everything that we want to do over that you know that we would give up our pursuit of happiness and i and i get that it's kind of a a sentiment to say you know you, you want to pursue happiness but guys that's a lie it's a lie that your version and vision of happiness is better than what jesus has planned And if you've walked with him any time at all, you you can testify to that reality. That he has a better vision and plan than we ever do. That when we quit pursuing the things that maybe we want and turn them over to Jesus, he does something greater with them. And that's what Jesus says to each one of us. When we come to him in our ordinary life with a, a real need, Jesus brings us back to the cross. And then when we come again in an ordinary day with a great need, Jesus brings us back to the cross. Jesus continually brings us back to the cross to deny ourselves once again so that we will follow Him, so that we can learn from Him how to live life with God. Because it's an ever moving, growing journey, a, a process. It's the first step in the journey to be brought to the cross. But it is a step that's going to be repeated. Jesus is going to keep bring us back to the cross, asking us to deny ourselves daily, daily, and, and, and follow him. Where, you know, we're saying, friends, there, there is nothing more miraculous than to see a life that gets to the place where it says, Not my will, but thine be done. There's not a greater work on the planet than a heart that gets transformed and changed to the point where you see someone say, I must decrease and he must increase. There's no greater miracle on the planet than a life that gets transformed in that direction and then consistently lives it out every day going back to that cross, denying myself picking up my cross and following him in the mundane everyday situations where I need because Jesus says when I do that he wants to make me alive he wants to make you alive it's in that journey back to the cross that he gives us abundant life when we are able to say with sincere hearts Lord I no longer want my will to be done. I, I, I want your will to be done. I want it done your way and, and not my way. Jesus, I, you know, I, I, there was a day when I had dreams that I, I wanted, but now I come to realize that my dreams can never, never, ever compare to your dreams for my life if I will choose to, to follow you because you have, you have a better vision. And any time, any time, Jesus is doing a miraculous work. He's going to bring us all to the cross. He's going to call on us to bow our, our heads and our, and our hearts, to live out of, of humility with a humble heart so that he can transform our hearts that will fall on our knees and, and will begin to say, Jesus, I want your pleasure to become my purpose. That's what I want, Lord. I want what pleases you to become the purpose for my life. So God, come, come have your way. And it's, it's this narrative that we read in John 2 of, of Jesus' miraculous working. And he, he steps into that everyday moment. He walks with his mom and the watching disciples facing this great need and he points them to the cross. To the moment where the Son of God would give all he had for all of us and so today, this morning, what I just want to kind of challenge us all to do for a couple of minutes is to let Jesus just bring you back to the cross. Now, if you're here and you don't believe that the Lord has ever taken you to the cross, if you're here and you've never gotten to that place where you've come to understand that what Jesus did on the cross was for you personally, that, that you have sin that separates you from God, That the Bible says makes you his enemy, but that Jesus' death on the cross paid for that sin so that you could be alive forevermore through his resurrection when he was raised three days later. That's God's plan for you, that you could step into that kind of life and begin to experience a different kind of life now. You could experience this repetitive movement of Jesus bringing a miraculous change of your heart transforming you a little bit more to be like him day by day. But for most of us in the room, I think the question is this, what is Jesus bringing me back to the cross for? What is it in my life that Jesus is saying through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, what is it that he needs me to come back to the cross for? What is it that I need to deny I'm pursuing. What do I need to let go of and pick up my cross and follow him? Because you can't carry that and follow Jesus to the cross. You can't do it. You got to let that go. And so today, that's, that's the challenge, if you would. If you are looking for Jesus to do some miraculous work in your life, somewhere in that soul circle, whether it is in your relationships, whether it is in maybe uh, your, your mind, maybe it's, it's in your body, maybe it's in your heart, your spirit, your soul right there. The Holy Spirit wants to reveal to you what he wants to bring you back to the cross for, to show you what you need to deny. And so I just want us to take a few moments to pray. And then as the Holy Spirit opens your mind to what that might be, I'm going to just encourage you to release it to him, to give it back to him, to say, to agree with him. In this area of my heart, Jesus, I, I, I choose, I choose to leave it at the cross today. I choose to walk away, to pick it up now, your cross, and to bear that, your purposes, your pleasure, God, will become mine. Let's take some moments to pray together. Lord, we we all, every one of us have places in our lives, in that soul that we are, where we need a touch from you. And God, maybe we're beginning to realize that it's in those everyday moments of our need that you want to bring us back to the cross, back to your cross so that we could see you in all your beauty, in all your glory, in your power to overcome our debt of sin we would see you there and our hearts would once again delight in knowing that at the cross you want to do a miraculous work in us in our hearts in our minds in our bodies, in our relationships in our soul, oh God and so we come We come, show us, God, where you wanna work. Maybe today is an act of releasing that, of giving that to Jesus and saying, Jesus, this is my need. And I do want it to come to the cross. Maybe today before you leave, you wanna go to one of the two crosses at the size of this room, those wooden crosses, And just write whatever that is you're releasing to the Lord today, just as a symbol of saying, Jesus, I'm bringing this need to you and then leaving it there. Picking up your cross and follow him. Looking only to him. Maybe as an act of worship, you want to do that. But Lord, we come now. We come come to worship you. We come to, to say to you, This day, God, we want you to be that great artist, that great artist in our hearts. We want to see you miraculously form us and shape us. We want to see you do that now, God. Do your work, please, Lord, in our hearts. It's in your name that I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.